0: Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We have pew Bibles. Two were taken last Sunday. So I just want to encourage you to not take the pew Bibles. Um, um, Leave these here. We have free handout Bibles for you, but these are uh, we want to keep these in the church as much as possible. So um, please, if you could leave these in the church, we'd appreciate it. But turn to page... If you don't have a Bible, you can use these pew Bibles. They have good, good large print here. Page 1090, I think it is. It's not in the bulletin, but it is 1090. Yes, 1090. So page 1090 here in the pew Bible, and you will find it. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, if you want to follow along there. Or your translation will not be too different. All right. Revelation chapter 3. Verses one through six. Hear then the word of the Lord. Write to the, ch- to the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy in the same way. The one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life. But we'll acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Just before we pray, I'm going to give you about 20 seconds to pray on your own. We need to ask the Holy Spirit. You need to ask the Holy Spirit for you individually, that he would help you to hear this word. And then we'll pray together. We'll also pray for John Lee. He's preaching right now at Christian Bible Fellowship in Covina, on church membership. So you can pray for him and the Spirit to work there as well. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you hold the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit and you give the Holy Spirit as you please. You've told us that you will send out your word and it will never return void or empty. But it will always accomplish the purposes for which you sent it. And so, Father, we pray that your seed, the seed of your word here this morning, would go deep into our hearts, deep into the heart of this church, and that it would bear fruit for your glory and for our joy and gladness in all that you are for us in Christ. For you are good. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in this text. We need your help. Incline our hearts to your testimony and not to material gain. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love that is secured in Christ so that we would rejoice and be glad all of our days. Father, we pray that you'd wake us up. This is routine for us, Father. We come every Sunday to hear your word, and it's a good routine. It's a great routine, and yet it can lull us to sleep. So wake us up and give us attention and alertness, not only physically for hearing right now, but alertness spiritually for our lives and for our church, and for Bellflower and for the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What if you were in danger and didn't know it? What if you were on let's say the Titanic, it's 1912, April 14th, and you are one of the crew members on the Titanic, you certainly have a say in the direction of the ship, and yet the person who got the signal warning about the glacier, um, they talked to just the captain, but they didn't talk to you, and you would have been one of the crew members who gets to weigh in on that decision. So the captain just kind of unilaterally, unilaterally on his own decides, no, we're going to be safe, we're going to be fine, Let's keep going. So you could have influenced the decision, but you didn't have the opportunity to. You were unaware that there was a decision that even had to be made. And so now your life is in danger, and this is historically what happened on April 14th, 1912. The the, the ship hits the glacier and the boat sinks. And 1,517 people die, And you could have stopped it. Not only could you have stopped it, you were in danger, you were not aware. Wouldn't that be infuriating when you found out that you could have done something differently? To know that you could have stopped it if you would have known you were in danger, but you just didn't know you were in danger. That's how many of us Christians live our lives. In danger, completely unaware of the danger. Now, if you're not a Christian, you've either ignored... The danger you're in or you've minimized the coming judgment or you've never heard of the christian message that god will judge the world and everyone in it but even then eternity is written on our hearts and we all kind of know that judgment is coming one day and if you're not a christian one of the reasons you're not a christian is because you have not taken that warning seriously you can't really take that warning seriously and not become a christian right i mean There's there's nothing that makes sense after that once you take it seriously. That there is a judgment that God has condemnation for those who are sinful, which is all of us. Now, if you're a Christian, you may be trapped by... Why are you unaware of the danger? If you're a Christian, you might have been trapped by overconfidence. An overconfidence in your own Christianity... That makes you numb to the real possibility that you can actually be judged. That you actually might not be a Christian. There are many Christians who never ask the question, am I really a Christian? And that's dangerous. Amen. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. I'm not saying you should walk around doubting your salvation every day. But if you never seriously consider the question, am I really a Christian? That's dangerous. And you would not even know it. Christians want to be alert and be ready, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of our church members. We want to keep others alert in our church. One reason is because God does hold us accountable. I don't know if you know the story from Ezekiel 3. Well, not really a story, where God tells Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3, he says, Ezekiel, you are a watchman, and you are to cry out in warning. If I tell you to speak and warn people about judgment, and they're in sin, and you and you don't warn them, they will be judged for their sins, but the blood will be on your hands. I'll hold you responsible. Now, if you tell them, and then they still don't repent, judgment is on them, and you have washed your hands clean. Also, if someone is, so if you warn someone, then you are, you're, you're free from your responsibility. If you don't warn them, you are also guilty for not saying things. This is why Christians should care about this message today. Because it's not only about your own personal alertness. It's not just about you and whether you really are a Christian. It's about whether the members of our church, whether they're really Christians or not. And so alertness is not just for you. It's for the whole church family. Because if we neglect to speak the gospel and speak gospel warnings to one another, then blood will be on our hands, even if some of our fellow members find out they're not really Christian, and go to hell. Now, what makes us dull to these things? Life makes us dull to these things. The routine of life, right? The busyness of life. Even our own local church culture, the way we do church and what we emphasize in church, can make us lull to sleep over the real things that matter in our church family. It could be the Southern Baptist Convention church culture. the the culture of our 45,000 churches. It can be the culture of evangelicalism, not just Southern Baptist churches, but general Christianity in America perhaps can lull us to sleep in terms of what's really at stake in our churches. So what if you were in danger and you didn't know it? Will Satan trick you and us into snoozing all the way to hell? Now, Jesus wants us to wake up he wants us to be alert. And so in this passage here, Revelation 3, 1 through 6, he sounds the alarm. Here's the main idea. Listen or heed. Heed Jesus' call to wake up and wait so that you conquer and receive your eternal reward. Okay, that, that's what Jesus wants, us to, wants you to do this morning. Wake up and stay up so that you receive your eternal reward. We can even make it a congregational command. Wake up. And stay up so that we receive our eternal reward. Look at the command. There's five elements to this command. So those are my two points, by the way, if you're taking notes. Wake up and stay up, okay? Wake up and stay up. And why do we need both of these commands? Because if you, well, we'll get to that in a second. Let's look at the first command, wake up, okay? Wake up is verses one through three. So you see the command here. Is said with five elements to this command. What's the, what's element number one? Look at verse two. What's the first command there? Be what? Be alert or be watchful. Be in a state of being awake. Okay, be watchful regularly, habitually, be alert. Not only be alert, but what else? Second command right there in verse two. Strengthen what? strengthen what remains. Okay, so you need to be awake and be alert. You need to strengthen what remains, which is about to die. And then go to verse three. There's a third command here. What's the third command? Verse three. Remember. This is all part of waking up. Remember what you have received or how you received it. And then the next command is what? Keep it, right? Don't only remember, but keep what you received. And then what? Last one. Repent. We're not we're not unfamiliar with that command. We've been going through the seven churches, and in every church, you know, the command is basically to repent. Okay, so what does it mean to wake up? It means to stay alert and wake up. It means to strengthen what remains. It means to remember what you received the gospel and remember how you received it. It's to keep it and to keep obeying it, not to just to say I became a Christian in 1989 and so I'm a Christian, but to keep it actively and then. To repent. Five elements to what it means to wake up. I don't want to spend time thinking about those elements too much. I'd rather think about the reasons why we need to keep these things. Why do we need to stay alert? Why do we need to repent? Why do we need to remember and and keep what we have heard? Why do we need to strengthen what remains? There are four reasons here in this text why we need to Stay alert or wake up. Number Reason number one. Okay, I have four reasons here under this first point. So first reason why we should wake up. Wake up because Jesus sees through your reputation. Jesus sees through you. He sees through your reputation. He sees through your name. That's what verse two says, right? Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found. I'm sorry. This is verse one. I know your works. You have a what? I know your works. Verse one, you have a what? A name or reputation of being what? Alive. That's your reputation. But I see through you. You're what? You're dead. Jesus sees through our reputation. A name is worthless before God if it is merely a facade. Now reputations are valuable before people because people can't see through everything you do. That's why reputation matters. Because people have limited knowledge. But with a God who has no limits to his knowledge, with a God who's omniscient and knows everything, reputation is nothing. It doesn't matter what your reputation is. He sees through it. He knows the truth. And so you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, the, the, the city of Sardis had a reputation for being a powerful, unscalable, um, an unscalable city that you couldn't conquer. It was built on a on a hill, and on this hill they had huge high walls on three of the sides, or and they defended three of the sides. On the fourth side of this city, it was built on a hill that was so high, and um, not not only was 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 high, but had many cliffs on this side made of friable material that would break away. It would all but break away, and it was so steep that. They didn't have to guard that side of the city. If you had watchmen guarding your city on the post, you put them on the three sides of the city, but you don't have to worry about that one side because it's too steep. No one will get up there. Well, guess what? Somebody got up there. Two different times in their history, they were not alert. They had the reputation of being the unbeatable city. And they were so confident in their reputation that they were not alert in guarding one of the sides and their city was sacked twice in their history for this overconfidence, for this lack of watchfulness. Their reputation, instead of strengthening them, actually endangered them. And that's what we need to be aware of too. Though this church at Sardis, just like the city, this church had a reputation for being alive. It had a reputation of life. Vitality, activity, it was dead, it was unhealthy, it was dying. Now I'm not thinking of false churches. You know what a false church is? The reformers taught us what a false church is. A false church is a church that does not preach the gospel and does not practice baptism and the Lord's Supper biblically. Or they they think that you're actually saved through the through the ordinances. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, for example. That when you are baptized, you're you're being born again. It's a false gospel. Okay, I'm not talking about false churches that look alive. You know how many people the Roman Catholic Church has? One billion members. It looks like a big live church. You got a lot of people there. I'm not talking about that false church. I'm not talking about false churches in America. You know the largest church in America? Who's our Who's our superstar pastor? Joel Austin, right? With whether it's Joel Austin, even T.D. Jakes, who also is a oneness Pentecostal, denies the Trinity, His a denomination, does. But I'm not talking about false churches that look alive. Joel Austin has four, they have three services. Their, their auditorium fits 15,000 people. It's full every time. You have 45,000, 50,000 people on Sunday. Looks alive, right? I'm not talking about those dead churches with false gospels. I'm talking about churches that actually believe the gospel. So I'm not going to name them here, not because I'm scared to name them, but because there's a lot more nuance that needs to be done than here. But you could think of churches today in our in our Southern Baptist Convention. You could think of churches in evangelicalism that preach, that, that believe the right gospel, but you name these churches and Christians know them. Oh yeah, that's a strong church. I'm not saying all of these big known churches are bad, but some of them can have, they have reputations, right? Churches have reputations. And some churches in American Christianity have reputations for being alive. And thriving, this is not a dying church like like you know a church that was shrinking and shrinking had less and less people and looked like they were dying where people from the outside could see that it was dying. This has a reputation of being a successful church, a thriving church, and yet Jesus sees right through that and says the church is dying and is dead. But we don't need to focus about those churches primarily. We need to focus on our own church, right? So we'll think about that more. But that's the first reason why we need to wake up is because um, Jesus sees through your reputation. Second reason why we need to wake up is because what remains is about to die. Look at verse two. What does Jesus say in verse two? Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to what? Die. die. So the second reason why we need to wake up is because there are things that remain in this church that are about to die. If you don't strengthen them, if you don't wake up and strengthen them, they will die in this church. In other words, if it's about to die, it's not yet dead. That's why I said the church is dead and dying. Because there's still a little bit of life here. There's still a pulse. Somewhere. A little bit of activity in this church body. It's about to die, but there's still life. They had some good things that were going on. They had some right things that they were doing. But it was like milk that's not in the refrigerator and is about to expire soon. It's about to die. It's about to go bad. It's about to spoil. And if you don't wake up right now and strengthen what remains, it's going to die. It's going to expire. Now, in other words, it's going to lose its life. Now, why is life and death important here in this passage? Because the church is supposed to be alive, right? Why is the church supposed to be alive? Because Jesus died to give us life. And then he rose from the dead, right? Jesus died because we were dead in our sins. He dies in our place. He gives us life in the spirit and we live now in the Holy Spirit, which is why. So life comes from the Holy Spirit, right? And what does it say about Jesus here in verse one? Thus says the one who has what? What does Jesus have in his hand? Well, not in his hand here, but what does he have? What does he possess here? Not only the seven stars, but the seven, what the seven spirits. Jesus has the seven spirits of God. What are the seven spirits of God? You could scratch your head and be like, what are the seven spirits of God? In Revelation 1 verse 4, grace and peace comes from the Father, from the Son, and from the seven spirits of God. So who is the seven spirits of God? If it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Or Holy Ghost if you want to go King James. The Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit. So it, the seven spirits of God is the one spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. Now, why seven? That that has the number of completion, the idea of completion here. In Revelation 5, verse 6, you're in Revelation, right? Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Revelation 5, 6, it says, Then I saw one, like a slaughtered lamb, that's Jesus, standing in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and among the elders, he had what? Seven horns and seven what? Seven eyes. Okay, a lamb with seven eyes. That's weird. But what are the seven eyes? The seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Okay, so you got a few clues here. The seven spirits is the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. The seven spirits are the seven eyes of who? Of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. And the seven eyes are sent, or the seven spirits are sent where? Into all the earth to see what's going on in the earth. So you have the Spirit of God on the earth, sent by the Son, or possessed, or the eyes of the Son, Jesus sent into the earth. What does all this mean? It's kind of confusing. Well, Revelation is highly symbolic. Seven has the number of completion. Jesus sees things comprehensively. The Spirit is the full, complete, Holy Spirit of God. But there's another thing going on here. Turn to Zechariah. Keep your finger in Revelation 2, but go, or Revelation 3, but go back to Zechariah. Now, it's okay if you can't find Zechariah. It's a hard book to find. Go to Matthew and then just flip back a few pages. If you look for Matthew in the New Testament and flip back a few pages, you'll find Zechariah. All right? Zechariah chapter 4 Zechariah chapter 4. Okay? Now if you if you find it look up here. Once you get it look up here, I just need you to I need to pull a few themes before I read it. We have a few things going on in Revelation. You have seven eyes of Jesus which are the seven what? Spirits of God. You have this idea of stars. What are the, what are the churches called in Revelation 1? Lance said earlier, they're called lamp what? Lampstands. So they're shining. Okay, so you got the idea of seven spirits, seven eyes, lampstand. Now, think of all these symbols, and now listen to Zechariah 4, verse 2. We're going to go 2 to 10. Or we might stop somewhere in the middle. We'll pick it up again later. Because I do want to keep your finger here in Zechariah. This is in the very beginning of Revelation. Okay, um, this idea. Zechariah 4, 2. God or the angel asked Zechariah, what do you see? I replied, I see solid golden lampstand, a solid golden lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also had seven lamps at the top with seven sprouts for each of the lamps. So you have seven lamps, seven lamps. On the one golden lampstand, you have seven lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl, one on on the left. That's going to speak of Revelation 11, but we're not doing that right now. Verse four, then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, um, what are these, my Lord? What are these seven lamps? Don't you know what they are? Replied the angel who was speaking with me. I said, no, my Lord. So he answered, this is the word of the Lord, word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel. Not by strength or by might, but, but how? By what? Spirit. By my spirit, says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. What? Are you, great mountain, before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of the house. His hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of the armies has sent me to you. Verse 10. For who despises the days of small things? These what? Seven eyes of who? Lord. Seven eyes of the Lord. Sound familiar, right? Seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice... When they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. So you have the idea of seven eyes tied to the Holy Spirit here, who is sent into all the earth. Okay? So, so now that we're, now let's go back. Keep your finger here because we're going to come to it later on in the next point. But um, stay, go back to Revelation 2, let's, or Revelation 3. Let's think about this for a second. Jesus has the seven spirits, okay? Follow me now. Jesus has the seven spirits. The seven spirits are sent by Jesus, or Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into the world. Why? Because the Holy Spirit gives what to people? Life. Think about Adam. Remember Adam? God formed him of the dirt, and what did he do? He breathed his spirit into Adam. Or think about Moses and the seventy. Moses led the people of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit empowered Moses to do it. And the seventy elders. When they built a tabernacle, the Holy the, the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory of God rushed into the tabernacle, and people had to run away from the tabernacle. As as um, God's Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle. I'm reading my devotions in Judges right now. In Judges chapter 3, the Spirit of the Lord, He comes on a judge. And then the judge has power to to conquer the Canaanites. See, so the Holy Spirit giving life and power and vitality to God's people. What about King David? Before David killed Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, you know what happened in 1 Samuel 16? Samuel went to, to Jesse's house and anointed David as king. And it says as soon as he was anointed as king, the spirit of Yahweh descended on David from that day on. Why was he able to kill Goliath? Because the Spirit of God lived in him and gave him power and faith. And then you have the promise of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. You guys know the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37? They're dead. They're just bones. A, a pile of bones on the floor. It goes speak to the bones. He speaks and then it says that when he speaks, the bones come together and there's life because the Spirit of God comes onto the people. What about creation? Even before Adam. Remember creation? There were waters and what was hovering over the waters? Or who was hovering over the waters? The Holy Spirit hovering over the chaos of the waters to bring life? Then Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and then he's sent out to take on Satan in the wilderness? What about the apostles? They were scared and hiding in a room after Jesus died and rose. And then the Holy Spirit descended and what did they do? Pentecost happened and they started speaking boldly. The point here is that the Holy Spirit gives life and power to the world Amen. and to his church. And you're a, he's saying this the church starts you're a dead church. You're a dying church. You know what you need? You need life. Who gives life? The Holy Spirit. Who has the seven spirits of God? I do, Jesus is saying. You need to put remains what is about to die. You need my spirit. You need to be filled by my spirit. It's the second reason why we need to wake up. Because what remains is about to die. We want to get off of the deathbed, so to speak. This is deathbed Christianity that Jesus is confronting here. Okay, so not only because of what remains is about to die. Third reason why we need to wake up is because your works are what? Go back to 3 verse 2. Strengthen what remains which is about to die, for I have not found your works what? Complete before my God. In other words, your works are not complete. They are incomplete, right? Right? They are incomplete. So that's the third reason why you need to wake up. Because your works, Bethany Baptist Church, our works are incomplete before God. Now their works were incomplete. Like the city of Sardis was incomplete in not defending that fourth side of, of their city. They were overconfident in their security. They thought they didn't need to complete it. Why do we need to complete it? We're already good. Well when your church, when you think that your church is already good and you don't need to complete things, that's when you start to fall asleep. Now, what were the specific works that were incomplete here? The short answer is, we don't know for sure. Greg Beale, my favorite commentator on this book, thinks that it's, they weren't witnessing. And I could, I could see that. They weren't witnessing. But I think it's a little bit more than that. So go back to Zechariah chapter four. One more time. Just slip here one more time. I had you keep your finger there, right? Go back to Zechariah four. I read over it. I, I don't know if you saw it. Did you see it? Did you see it in Zechariah four? There was a clue here. Verse 9. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house. That's the temple. The temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Zerubbabel is rebuilding this temple in Jerusalem. He has laid the foundation of this house. And his hands will what? In verse 9. His hands will what? Finish it. Complete it. What was he completing? The what? The temple. So... My guess, in terms of what we need to be completing, is the the temple. And who's the temple? Jim said it. Who's the temple? The church. We are the temple. And so we need to keep building the church. That's what 1 Peter says, that we are living stones. Every member is a living stone of the church and you're building up the church. So I think Greg Beal's answer of witnessing is partly right. Because how do you build the church? You need to witness the people. They get saved and they join the what? The church. You're building the church. And even if they don't get saved... If members are sharing the gospel, aren't they being built up in their faith? Aren't they growing in their Christianity? Whether they get saved or not, if you're gospelizing them, you're being built up. And yet you still want to build them up because God has many people to save. And so we want to share the gospel with them. Their works were incomplete because they were not building up the church, not just by looking at each other, but by looking to the lost. By looking to the Lord. So, what are our incomplete works not in our church but in churches generally in america today i'll answer generally and then we'll go specific to our church and start twisting the knife in our own hearts right (laughs) including myself but where where where's the church incomplete for america today lots of churches don't preach the gospel they believe it but they don't preach it regularly a lot of churches don't preach scripture they read a bible passage and then they just they start talking about whatever else they want to talk about after they read the passage of scripture they don't they don't let the the text control their message A lot of churches teach or don't teach and learn biblical and systematic theology. They think that's for professional Christians or mature Christians and not just Christians. Just so you know, everyone's a theologian. Even non-Christians are theologians. Non-Christians are theologians. They all, you know, so so you need to study theology. Churches don't clearly articulate the gospel. They need to complete their works in completing the gospel. Some churches don't understand Conversion. They have a light view of conversion. If you just profess faith or if you just, you, you pick whatever your method, you know, if you just got baptized or if you just walked down the aisle or if you just sign a card or if you just say you're a Christian or if you just go to church for several months or if you really cried when you heard, you know, when you watched a Christian movie, then then, then they have to be Christian because they're really emotionally moved, right? That's not a complete view of conversion. It's not what the Bible says conversion is. Churches need to complete their view on that. Meaningful membership. Churches need to understand... You don't need to use the word membership. I don't care for the word necessarily. Churches need to understand that people who are committed to their church are mutually committed and accountable to each other. Churches don't do that. They're incomplete. Churches don't have loving and courageous practice of restorative discipline. Discipline restoration. They don't practice excommunication in their churches. That's incomplete. Some churches don't love their neighbors... They don't even know their neighbors' names. Or they've known their neighbors' names for years, but they've never shared the gospel with their neighbors. Never even tried to. Just They didn't even stutter it out and and fail. They just didn't try. It's incomplete. Some churches don't cooperate with other churches. They like to be independent. Some churches don't do world missions. They don't think about the nations. Some churches don't practice multi-ethnic harmony. They're very very mono, mono-ethnic and they want everyone who joins that church to, to fit into their culture and not let let everyone shape the culture as a church family. Social engagement. Some churches want to just stick to church stuff and evangelism but don't really engage the general culture with biblical truth. Incomplete works. What about our church? Let's not talk about other churches. Let's talk about our church. Where are we incomplete? Where is Where am I incomplete even as a pastor in my leadership? Where are we incomplete as a church? I have a list of maybe seven or eight here. Just go through them quickly so it doesn't hurt too much. <laughs> Membership role. We need to strengthen what remains and finish cleaning the role. Amen. We took off three. We got a lot more to go, but let's let's do that. Plurality of pastor elders and deacons in the church. The normal the normal church in the New Testament has a plurality of pastors and, and deacons and even deaconesses. We could argue about that. That's okay. Deaconesses, I'm not gonna fight about that. We could Talk about that. But either way, there are plurality of leaders in the church. Amen. And it's not other kinds of leaders. I'm not saying um, committees are bad or having a, a a song leader is bad or, you know, different kinds of leaders or youth leader is bad. That's not what I'm saying, but that's not the biblical. That's not what makes a church complete. What makes a church complete is the biblical structure of what a church is. Amen. Okay. We need to complete what the Bible tells us a church is supposed to be. So you need a plurality of pastor elders and deacons. What else? Corporate devotion to prayer and a personal practice of prayer. Do we pray? Do we pray for each other by name? We don't have a big church. It doesn't take long to pray for every member of this church. Do we pray for each other? Have we asked for God's spirit to help us because we can't do it on our own? Do we feel desperate for God's power as a church? Sunday night would say no. Sunday night would say, I mean, the, the people who come on Sunday night, they would think so, probably, because they're here on Sunday night. But those who aren't and could be, I'm not everyone's able-bodied, I get that. But those who could and aren't, are we desperate to pray together because we know that we can't do this on our own strength? What about care for members on our care list? We have a care list of members who can't make it here. I could start rattling off their names, but, you know, are we caring for them? Am I caring for them? Are you caring for them? Are we caring for them? Just because we don't see them here doesn't mean they should be forgotten, right? Complete our love. We could take the directory that Barbara's printed. Are there some in the back right now? There's some in the back. If you don't have their addresses, phone numbers, you could call them, contact them, visit them, write them. What about learning to go, learn, we, we learn a lot of Bible here without actually gospelizing each other personally or rebuking each other personally. We know a lot of truth, but we're not complete in correcting each other. We think it's the pastor's job to correct people and it is my job, but it's also yours. Um, we know of sin. We know we should confess our own sin and correct one another, but we don't really share our vulnerabilities, our conversations. Remain shallow, and we don't want to show our weaknesses personally or spiritually. That's incomplete. And I say this, I'm not picking on one side here. There's there's probably all sides of this in terms of our church voting. Okay, so this is not one side or the other. I've I've seen this on both sides. Okay, so here's where we're incomplete: voting on things in our church and then griping about the church tension without loving and meaning, meaningfully engaging those we disagree with. That's, both, that's all sides, right? We all vote on things. We all disagree on things. But do we gripe and complain? Or do we meaningfully engage each other? Do we pray for each other? Do we really care about each other? It's incomplete if we don't. What about neglecting to gospelize our neighbors? And our loved ones for their initial and final salvation? Jesus is saying, strengthen what remains. There are good things going on here. But you better strengthen what remains, which is about to die. Because your works, our works, Bethany Baptist Church, my works, PJ, our works are not complete before our God. So we need to wake up. It's the third reason why, because our works aren't complete before God. Our fourth reason why we need to wake up, verse 3. Look at verse 3. If you are not alert, what's going to happen? If you don't wake up, what's going to happen in verse 3, the end of verse 3? Jesus will what? He'll come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour he'll come upon you. Jesus will come in judgment. This is not primarily referring to the second coming, though it could include that. In in chapter 2, verse 22, he comes to discipline his church. He's going to throw them into a sickbed, remember? And into affliction. Or even worse, he'll take their lives. Remember he said, I will strike her children dead last week. If you, um, Revelation 2, 23. He'll kill some of our church members. Not only that. Revelation 2.16, I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He'll actually send some of our members to hell because they're not really Christian. If we don't repent, if we don't wake up as a church, if we don't start completing the works that God has given us to complete, he will discipline us, he will take some of our lives, and he will fight against some of us with the sword of his mouth. In judgment, in condemnation. So we need to feel the threat that Jesus is giving us here wake up Bethany Baptist Church so what, let's apply this so if, if for individuals uh, this means that we need to wake up we need to be alert in our own lives we need to be aware of the danger of sleeping Jesus is going to come like a thief so he tells us to be alert we need to strengthen what remains that means we need to focus on following through we need to remember what we received and what have we received the gospel right? We've received Jesus Christ. And we've received the Bible. So let's remember what we received. Let's remember how we received it. When you first became a Christian, the text actually, literally King James gets it, gets this right. CSB gets this wrong. See Jim. It's good. KJV gets this right. CSB gets this wrong. It's remember how you have received, not what you've received. Now it says, keep it. So there is a what there, but remember how you're, remember how you became a Christian. Remember how passionate you were. Remember how you would complete the things you started as a Christian. Remember when you didn't, you loved people, but you didn't care so much what they thought as much as telling them what God thought? Remember that? Remember how you receive these things. Keep what you have received and repent. Turn away. We need to be filled by the Spirit because without the Spirit's help, we can't do it. How do you be filled by the Spirit? Hear the Spirit's word. Meditate on it. Repent. Repent from what you read. When you read your Bible, brothers and sisters, I would just challenge you, before you finish your devotions, anytime you finish your devotions, repent from something. If you you can't find anything to repent from when you read your Bible, just keep reading. You haven't read read enough verses yet. Keep going. And pray. And then then ask God to convict you. Not just because you want to feel guilty, because you want to repent and cleanse your heart before the Lord, and then you want to trust Christ afresh, right? You want to draw near to Jesus again. So, Jesus holds the spirit. We need to go to him for this. We need to wake up as a church family. And I want to say one more one more thing about praying and even our church prayer meeting on Sunday nights. You need to have, brothers and sisters, a covenant mentality, not a consumer mentality. A consumer mentality looks at our church and says, what's in it for me? Should I go to Wednesday morning? Should I go to Wednesday night? Should I go to Sunday school? Should I go to Sunday service? Should I go to Sunday night? What's in it for me? Not that you should never ask that question. When you ask that question as your first question or your only question, you're a consumer. You're just thinking about yourself. But we're a family, which means you don't only really think about yourself, you think about who? Others. Others. You think about each other. And when you think about each other, you think, well, who who are we going to pray for that evening? What are, who am I going to encourage by my presence? That's a covenant mentality. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, let me say to you, you need to wake up too. Not for the same reasons we need to wake up, but because there's a judgment coming. And if you're not a Christian, for us as Christians, we need to wake up because some of us might be going into judgment and some of our members might be going into judgment. So we need to wake up. But if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to wake up because judgment is certainly coming to you. When I talk about judgment, I'm talking about God's wrath, God's punishment, God's anger, hell, the lake of fire, eternal punishment forever and ever and ever for our sins. That is coming to you. If you're not a Christian. And so you too. You need to wake up. Jesus says the one who believes in the son. Has eternal life. But the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead the wrath of God remains on him. John 3.36. God is patient towards you. That's why you're here this morning. Thank you for being here if you're not a Christian. But God is telling you. That you need to wake up today. You might die on your way home. Any of us might die on our way home right. We might. You need to wake up right now. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Why should you trust in Jesus? Let me just give you the gospel in a minute. You should trust in Jesus because God is the creator. God has created you. He's created this world. And so you have to answer to him, whether you like it or not. He created you and he made you in his image to enjoy him forever. But God's not only creator, he's also judge. God is righteous. And so he'll condemn us for our sins. And we all deserve to be condemned for our sins because we're all sinners. But not only is God creator and judge, here's the good news. God is Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the savior. Jesus Christ came and he was God came and became a man. He lived on this world he lived in this world, became a man and lived the life we should have lived, never sinned and he died on the cross for our sins. He substituted for you. He took your place. If not only is God savior, but he's also Lord. If you'll repent from your sins, And trust in Jesus as your Savior, as your treasure, as your Lord. So God is inviting you this this morning to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. And he will restore you to himself. He'll give you his Holy Spirit so that you can live life for him and with him. Now if you're saying, I get that PJ, I just don't like that because I think God's a God of love. And you guys are saying that God is a God of anger. So I don't know what God you're talking about, but the God I believe in is a God of love and forgiveness and kindness and compassion. You're saying that God is judgmental and that He murders people and that He'll He'll he kill people in judgment. I mean, think, think you're saying He killed Jesus on the cross for our sins? That's a bloody, primitive, outdated, petty God, and I don't want nothing to do with Him. That might be where you're at if you're not a Christian. But here's a brief response to that that Tim Keller has taught me: all forgiveness. Okay, first of all, God does not demand your blood on the cross. He gives his own blood. Amen. What that means is that all forgiveness for anything that's deeply wrong involves suffering on the forgiver's part. Okay? So when you are deeply wrong, if someone commits a crime against you, you can either do one of two things. You can either, number one, make the perpetrator pay. You can even get revenge, which will harden us and evil would spread, right? If you got revenge on someone who committed a crime against you and you committed a crime back... You just perpetuate evil in the world. So you could either get revenge because you're deeply wronged, or two, you can forgive them. But that's enormously difficult. Well, you could say, oh, I could go to law and they could get arrested. Yeah, you could do that, but you could still be bitter for the rest of your life. And that's a form of revenge. And you're perpetuating evil. Or you can forgive them and not be dominated by bitterness. But that's enormously difficult because that means you have to absorb the evil yourself. And you can't put it out on them in bitterness or resentment. So... So, if we can't forgive, secondly, I'd say this, if we can't forgive without suffering, because that's what justice demands, when an injustice has happened, there's suffering. There needs to be justice, and it's not surprising. So, if, if we can't forgive without absorbing the pain, then we shouldn't be surprised that God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to absorb the pain for us. He dies on the cross for us. So, yes, we have an angry God, but he's also a loving God. And his anger doesn't have to be towards you. That's his love. That he would direct his anger towards Christ instead of you if you would turn from your sins and trust in him. Okay, that's the first and long and main point. Wake up. Okay? Now the second point. Shorter. Even though it's three verses as well, it's it's really, it's a lot shorter. Stay up. If you're going to wake up, church, you need to stay up. Why do you need to stay up? Same reason why my kids need to stay up when we wake them up for school. Right? You wake them up for school, and then if they wake up and they're awake, okay, yes, dad, I'm awake. Okay, I'm up. And then you leave the room, and then they put their pillow back uh, or their head back on their pillow and they fall back asleep. They, they woke up, but they did not what? Stay up. And what good is that? You're not going to get to school if you don't stay up, right? You got to wake up and you got to stay up. If we wake up this morning as a church and we go right back to sleep tomorrow and just do church as normal after today, you didn't stay up. You need to wake up and you need to stay up. Why? For those who stay up and you know, not everyone had fallen asleep. Some of them had already stayed up. Look at verse four. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. They stayed up. So why should we stay up? What happens to them when they stay up? Three things. Three reasons why you should stay up or three rewards for staying up. What are the three rewards for staying up? First, in verse four, they have not defiled their clothes. They stayed pure. So they will what? They will walk with Christ in white because they are worthy. Verse 5, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. So the first reason, first reward for staying up in purity is that you're dressed in white clothes. That means you have the righteousness of Christ. You've been faithful to God to the end. Revelation 7, 9 says they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. The people from every nation, tribe, and language. In Revelation seven thirteen and 14, it says they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Where does their whiteness come from? From their perfection? From their personal holiness? No, it comes from Christ's blood. Amen. That Christ washed them, Christ died for them. But if Christ washes you, what is it going to produce in your life? Faithfulness and righteousness and holiness, right? That's why Revelation 19, 8 says this. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. What is the fine linen? What is the white linen? The righteous acts of Of the saints, because they didn't just get saved and say, once saved, always saved, so they live however they want. If they were really washed in Christ's blood, they now have the Holy Spirit who empowers them to have righteous acts. And so having the white clothing was a symbol of victory. According to my one of my favorite New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, he says that um in in Sardis they would have games, and it was only for men, not for women, because they had to have races around the city. You know, these races and the men would race and it would only be men because they would race naked. That's part of their sport culture, their athletic culture. So you got a grown men running a race naked and the winner gets a white robe. That's their, that's their victory trophy. Clothes! I'm not sure that the other ones had to stay, you know, unclothed, but the, the winner had white clothes. It was a symbol of victory. So guess what? If you stay faithful, brothers and sisters, if you wake up and if you stay up and you keep enduring in righteousness, you will be clothed with white clothes as a winner, as the conqueror, as the victor. Amen. That's all what Revelation 2 and 3, and the whole book of Revelation is about the Christians overcoming Satan, sin, and the world, and even the sin in the church. So overcome so you can have the white clothes of Christ's righteousness. Second reason why, second reward for, for overcoming, look at verse 5. They will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never what? Jesus will never what? Erase his, name. erase his name from the book of life. Now we scratch our heads here and say, what do you mean, erase his name? Can anyone's name be erased? Revelation 13.8 says that people's names were not written or written before the foundation. So in Revelation 13.8 it says, those who live on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. So it was written from the foundation of the world. Revelation 20.15 says anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire so there's this book of life and jesus is saying if you endure to the end if you stay up if you wake up and you stay up i will not erase your name i will never erase your name from the book of life never meaning you'll have it forever in the book of life which means you have eternal life now where does this idea come from it comes from exodus 32 Do you remember they worship the golden baby cow right they got the ten commandments worshiped a big not big small i don't know how big golden baby cow and so they are worshiping that, and then Moses, God says, I'm going to wipe all of them out. I'm going to start all over with you. And you know what Moses said? God, in Exodus 32, 32, Now if you would forgive their sins, but if not, please erase me from the book you've written. That's the first time you get the idea of erasing from a book. God, erase my name from the book if you're not going to forgive this people. Psalm 69, 28 is the other Old Testament reference where it says, where there's David, King David's enemies, and David prays this, let my enemies be erased from the book of life and not recorded with the righteous. Enemies of the king, enemies of the Messiah, let their names be erased from the book of life. So can you lose your salvation, yes or no? No. Okay, that's in our statement of faith. You cannot lose your salvation. Romans 8, 28 through 30 makes very clear that those he justified, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. They will make it to the end. You cannot lose your salvation. And yet, brothers and sisters, be very careful here. Don't let Satan trick you. You remember how Satan tried to trick Jesus? Doesn't it say in the Bible that if you jump off this temple, that the angels will save you? Don't you believe the Bible, Jesus? Same thing with you. Satan can say, don't you know that once you're saved, you're always saved? Don't you know you could never lose your salvation? So don't doubt your salvation. You don't need to wake up. You don't need to stay up. As long as you, you did that, you professed faith in Jesus five years ago or ten years ago or five days ago or five, fifty years ago, just remember that and don't doubt your salvation. This is using, this is the doctrine of eternal security that you could never lose your salvation, eternal security you can use the doctrine of eternal security in a satanic way. If you are so secure in your salvation that you can be so secure without repenting, without pursuing holiness, without being alert, then Satan has dulled you and deceived you and he can be deceiving you into hell. You need to wake up and be alert. You can never lose your salvation. But... If you are falsely secure and overconfident, and you don't wake up and you don't look in the mirror and look at yourself and look at your sins and repent, you can be tricked by Satan. Amen. And your name will effectively be erased from the book. Not because it's just an image. Okay, it's not effectively like it was there and it's taken out. It, but the image there of your name being erased because you thought you were a Christian. Everyone thought you were a Christian. You were. You had the name of life. You had a reputation for being alive, but you were dead. So this is I'm just telling you what 2 Peter 1 10 and 11 says. Make your calling and election sure. sure. You if, you were called, if you're called a Christian, if you're if you are chosen to be a Christian, as 2 Peter 1 11 says, then make it make it sure. Keep going. Well, you're saying I don't need to keep going because I'm already saved. Ah, uh, you're going the wrong direction. Please don't do that. Please, please, please. Our church exists. To, to help each other stay up. Okay, um, last reason here why you need to stay up is look at verse 5. I will never erase his name from the book of life, but I will what? What will Jesus do? He, he will acknowledge or confess your name before my father and before his angels. Notice name here is played several times. You have a name for being alive, but you're dead. And then he says later on, um, you have many names who have not defiled their clothes. You have many names. So it's not there in the CSB, sadly, but names is a literal. You have a name of life, but you're dead. But you have many names in your church who are still alive and haven't defiled their clothes. So in the end, I will confess your name if you stay up. I'll confess your name before the Father. So that means Jesus will acknowledge you before the Father and before his angels. What's the name? What's in a name? The name is whether you truly are Christian or not, if you're truly in Christ or not. I'll close with one, let me, um, so verse seven says, or verse six says, let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me close with Matthew 10. Okay, you could, you could turn there if you want, but just listen. Matthew 10, 32. Here's what Jesus is saying about acknowledging his name before the Father. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, stays silent, zips their mouth, whoever's chicken, or cowardly before others because of me? I will deny him before my father in heaven. They're sleeping. I'll deny him before my father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a father against a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Therefore whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy that worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me anyone who finds his life will lose it and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it kids listen up kids listen up you need to follow Jesus more than your parents that's what it says right you need to love Jesus more than your parents if you're going to be worthy you need to count the cost and you need to not deny Jesus even in your family you need to trust Jesus and follow Jesus no matter what and that's not just true of kids; it's true of all of us, right? We need to trust and acknowledge Jesus before men, and He will acknowledge us before His Father in heaven. All right, so let's stay up, church family, children, um, members of this church. Don't rest on don't don't let the rest of the world or the church pull you down. Children, don't let your brothers or sisters in your house pull you down. Don't let your parents pull you down. You now, parents aren't trying to pull you down; we're trying to raise you up, but we we fail from time to time. Don't let the world. Lull you into sleep. Stay awake. This world, your TV, your cell phone, your social media, everything you do, your work, they're all trying to get you to sleep. You need to stay awake. And as a church family, we need to help each other stay awake. We need to listen, and we need to let our members, all of our members here, move the church. We have members here who haven't defiled their clothes. You know what we need to do with those members? We need to let them have their influence in this church. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, I could never stay up. I can barely stay up for this sermon. It's really long. How do I stay up for, how do I stay up in my, I'm not, I can't stay up and follow Jesus. Well, if you're not a Christian, here's what I want to say to you. You don't have the power in you to stay up. Neither do we as Christians. Jesus does. So the good news is if you trust in Christ, he will give you his Holy Spirit and he will empower you to stay up. Why? Because Jesus stayed up in the garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? His disciples slept and they fell into sin. Jesus stayed up in the garden. And, and yet, even though he stayed up when he was hanging on the cross, did the Father acknowledge him? No, he forsook him. Did Was Jesus treated like his name was in the book of life when he was on the cross? No. no, he was treated like his name was erased, even for those three hours. He was erased from the book of life for those three hours on the cross as he took the condemnation of God so that we could be saved, so that we could stay up and wake up and so that we could have his Holy Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, wake up and stay up. If you don't, well, there will be the horror of judgment and disaster. Horror of judgment may be on you. Disaster of deceiving some of our members who might not make it to the end because they were not never really challenged. If we do this well, if we wake up and stay up, we will have vitality and flourishing in our church. We will have confidence to do what God tells us to do in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we will be dressed in white. We will be acknowledged before the Father, and we We'll what's the third one? We'll be dressed we will be dressed, will be um acknowledged before the Father, and I'm blanking out here. And my Bible's in Matthew, not in Revelation. And we will um we'll have our names written in the book of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't want to sleep, we don't want to stay sleeping, we want to wake up, we wanna be alert. The end is about to come up. And Lord Jesus, you're about to come up. So let us wake up and stay up. You're coming. Judgment is coming. Life is short. This world helps us snooze very quickly and easily. So Father, keep us alert and awake, we pray. And may our church members, may every single member on our, on our members list, every single active member, every member who's here, and those members who are sick and on our careless who can't be here, may we help each other stay up and wake up to make it to the end that we might celebrate together. And if any of our members are sleeping, Lord, or any of our members aren't saved, we pray that you would lead them to repentance, initial repentance here. And for all of us, help us to keep repenting and keep trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.